This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Chulley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Massive thank you to Patrick McGuire for looking after the place last week. I'm back in the hot seat now, right the way through until Easter, uh, with plenty happening in politics. I assume by the time we get to Easter, even more MPs will have announced their standing down. More people who can join me for their exit interview on today's episode. Tory MP and former minister Deanna Davison on why she's quitting the Commons just five years after becoming an MP in 2019. A really fascinating interview from someone arguably at the beginning of their political career, giving it up already. We'll also have have the columnists Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on another announcement to ban mobile phones in schools. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me for Politics About the Boring Bits live on Times Radio. Just listen to us on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics About the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Unlike everyone in politics, we've now got access to our WhatsApps. Unlike Rishi Sunak. I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp. Unlike Nicola Sturgeon. I don't think I've ever WhatsApped. Yes, we've got access to our WhatsApps. This is government by WhatsApp. No, this is radio by WhatsApp care. Well, you're not averse to sending WhatsApps and texts 24 hours a day, Mr Cummings. No, I'm not. Well, you're in luck, Dominic Cummings, because you can now WhatsApp us on the podcast. So if you want to tell me what you thought of the podcast, if you've got a question that you want us to try and answer in future episodes, you can WhatsApp. Here is the number, 033-003-2353. That's 033-003-2353. Now, it is a Times Radio WhatsApp, so if you want to make sure your message gets to me, make sure you put Matt on it, or Politics Out the Boring Bits, or this is the podcast, just make it clear, 033-003-2353. You can now WhatsApp the podcast, so you might hear yourself on a future episode. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Yes, let me say hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby Purvis. Hello. And hello to Rachel Sylvester. Hi, Matt. Now, uh, let's talk about mobile phones in schools in England. Uh, it gets earlier every year, this announcement. Uh, it was announced by Gillian Keegan in uh, October last year at the party conference. Uh, I looked it up. It's five years ago, almost to the day that uh, Nick Gibb, then the school's minister, told me. Uh, if you could go all the way back to 2007... 
Michael Gove announced it when he was Shadow Education Secretary. Uh, and then uh, Nigel Fletcher, who is a regular on the show, um, uh, who used to work for the Tories, he says he thinks it might actually be 20 years ago because he wrote the policy paper <laughs> on it. Uh, but anyway, uh, for the, just... Given the benefit of the doubt, this is the, this is the Education Secretary of England, Gillian Keegan, speaking to Times Radio earlier. So what we've seen is about half the schools already have a ban in place. Some of them restrict phones all through the day. Some of them allow phones during break times. Uh, so there are uh, inconsistencies. And what we feel is important now is to get phones out of the classroom. They are a distraction. We have been concerned about increases in bullying, etc., using uh, amplified by social media but largely it's to make it clear and to empower head teachers to say there's no place for the phones in our classroom so uh rachel you're rolling your eyes <laughs> at this uh re-announcement of a re-announcement i think this falls into the eye-catching initiative in the run-up to a general election yes. doesn't it? it's free doesn't yes. cost them any money. Uh, it can grab a headline, look like they're doing something. But actually, 80% of schools already have some kind of ban on mobile phones in the classroom or either an outright ban or only when the teacher says specifically you can use your phone. Um, so I just find it a bit frustrating that they're seizing on this when there are so many other issues in schools. You know, you've got a fifth of pupils persistently absent. You've got a mental health crisis. You've got, um, you know, a third of children failing their GCSEs. To seize on this gimmick feels really disappointing and, you know, a, a waste of um, government sort of time, effort and resources, really. And actually, uh, the interest, you, the important thing about mobile phones is how they're used outside the classroom as well, rather than... It, well, obviously, you don't want them in the classroom, but actually, a lot of the online bullying or the most the darker side of it are happening when children aren't at school. And that's not going to prevent it. What do you think of this, Libby? Is it... Is, I suppose there's the, there's the fact that it's been announced several times, but they've got round to it now and they've put out some guidance. Is it in of itself... A good idea. Uh, it's a good idea to to reduce or, or, or remove uh, the use of mobile phones in schools. I've been banging on about this for years. But what struck me about the announcement is that this is perfectly simple. What you have to do is just give more power to the teachers. They should have the power to search backpacks. They should have power to search a child. They should absolutely have power to confiscate a phone if it's being used in class when it shouldn't be or in any place where it shouldn't be. Um, they should be able to confiscate it and have immunity from the parents suing them if it's lost or damaged. Uh, you know, if kids thought, you know, that misuse of the phones or, or overuse of the phones in school would cause it to be taken away for the rest of term, it would be the most massive deterrent. But teachers are hampered. I think Rachel could probably confirm this. Are hampered so much in what they can do and um, are so hampered by fear of parents suing them and so on that, that it's, uh, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I, I'm also interested in the fact that some schools still don't have lockers. Kids are dragging these backpacks around huge campuses all day long with all their books in because there is no provision for safe lockers. So sometimes it'd be impossible for a kid who needs the phone to get, you know, to get into school and be safe on the road to school. Uh, be very difficult for them to do anything but have it with them. This is also... Uh, there's a sort of ideological thing here, uh, Rachel, about who is actually in charge of what goes on in schools. And we hear a lot about, you know, Whitehall should get out of the way and trust teachers and all of that. And then this, this is real micromanaging... Uh, while also only being guidance, it's just like some advice, really, 
Um, partly because it's the quickest way to do it rather than try to pass a law. But actually, in academies, they're free to do what they like, aren't they? They're, they're, they're under no obligation at all to take any notice of the Education Secretary. Yeah, I think the, the real issue about this is it's not going to make any practical difference in most classrooms, if any classrooms. So you sort of slightly wonder why they're doing it, uh, apart from to catch a headline. Uh, but I think there's a really important thing that um, they could be doing, which is children need to learn how to navigate this new and quite dangerous online world mm. that they are going to be part of. Um, we can't pretend that the internet doesn't exist. We can't pretend that social media and mobile phones don't exist. And I was really interested, I went to Finland for the Education Commission and they have these compulsory media literacy classes, they call them, from the age of seven, where you learn about that there's fake news, you learn about uh, manipulation online, you learn you build up a sense of resilience and you you learn how to use social media and the internet and you learn how to manage your own screen time. That's what we've got to give children yeah. rather than a sort of gimmicky ban that isn't really going to make any difference. I've, I've mentioned this before on the show, but like my daughter's school, they, they aren't allowed their folk already they're you know they're essentially banned. You're not allowed them out during lessons or during lunchtime. And yet her entire school life, her timetable, her homework, her achievement points, her update, all of that is on an app, which is on her phone. Yeah. Um, which she has to access, you know, so so maybe that's the right way to do it, that you try to avoid the distractions, but acknowledge the fact they're going to use their phones anyway. So um, anyway, so, well, well they've, they wanted a headline and now they've got one. Uh, uh, Libby, let's talk about your column today. You've written about uh, the courage of Alexei Navalny. Uh, his death obviously announced on Friday. Still no information on uh, how he died. Uh, obviously, the, the, there's, a, there's a strong assumption that he died at the hands of the uh, Putin regime. But you've written about how his incredible courage possibly makes us think about the, the way we all behave. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in all sorts of different ways. I mean, he was just remarkable and he had a, a humour about him too, which is, is one just right to the end. You know, he was, he was, he was teasing the judge. Um, but I think the most relevant words, apart from sheer admiration, are who in government, who is going to be brave enough to tell their nation here or in Europe that we need now to strengthen our defence forces, that we need to give more help to Ukraine and that this is going to involve quite a heavy burden and it may be a tax burden on those who can afford it. It may be a loss of expensive projects because we are closer now to a war situation and to a greater evil walking on the continent than we have been for decades. And I, I don't see this kind of courage, either in Europe or America, of saying to people, look, these are suddenly rather different times because of Putin, and it, it must be stopped. And that's, that's another kind of courage, <laughs> different to Navalny's courage, uh, but it needs, it needs to be exercised. And, and I think he, you know, the inspiration that, that he gives is, is possibly in that direction. What did you make of it, Rachel? I thought um, Libby quotes in her column that line, uh, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And that sense that Navalny refused to let himself be a victim, however much Putin tried to turn him into one, uh, and was, as Libby argues, brave and courageous to the end. Uh, and it's an incredible example. But, and it goes beyond that sort of political or defence argument. It's about attitude to life and are you going to let yourself be destroyed by circumstances or are you going to rise above it? 
Uh, and I think there's something for everyone in that, actually, to think about. Yeah, absolutely. It's an extraordinary amount of coaching. I suppose that was interesting. Over the weekend, I was listening to an interview with... It wasn't his wife. It was the wife of, uh, of another sort of political prisoner who was really torn between being very proud the courage of the, but ultimately lost her husband into a, a prison that he was unlikely to ever emerge from. Yeah, and um, we don't know what's happened yet, but I, you know, that his poor mother wandering around yeah. trying to find his body is just appalling, isn't it? But his well, message, I mean, I think one of the well, the interesting things about him is that he offered his followers hope, yeah. but no comfort. Mm. He says, you know, this is a job that has to be done. Fill the prisons, fill the paddy wagons. There are more of us than there are of them, you know, but hope, but no comfort. And I think that we offer a great deal of comfort every direction all the time, politically and in general sort of discourse. You know, everything must be must be comfortable. People must not be made uncomfortable. Well, you're going to have to be uncomfortable in some situations mm. in life. And he said that very clearly. Right. Let's turn our attention now to the pub. One of my favourite topics. Could the next election be decided in the pub? Uh, polling for the Beer and Pub Association has found that nearly one in three people say pubs would play a vital role in the next election as the home of local politics. Uh, well, we can speak to Merlin Griffiths now, who is a pub owner and, of course, the bartender on Channel 4's First Dates. Hi, Merlin. Hi, how are you doing, Matt? Oh, very good, oh, very good. I was very struck by this, that people thought that uh, uh, 41% of councillors and MPs who visit pubs are seen as being more in touch as a landlord, do you like to see politicians coming in the pubs? Do you do you want it? Do you encourage people to talk about politics, or do you try to leave that at the door? Yeah, it's the obvious question, isn't it, Matt? We always say you should never talk about politics, sex, and religion while you're at work in a pub. However, um, this research seems to contradict that, and I and I think you know pubs are the last of the great egalitarian spaces that we have, where people can connect and enjoy the the company of their community. And I think you know a little sensible political discourse should be encouraged. What do you think of this, Rachel? Should Does it make a politician... Because every time you sort of see a politician pulling a pint, you do think, oh, give it a rest. I mean, even like, especially Rishi Sunak, who doesn't even drink, but still feels obliged to pose exactly. pulling a pint. Well, my stepdaughter got married on Friday and we had their reception in the local pub, the Railway Tavern in Dalston, after the Hackney Town Hall. And it was such a brilliant atmosphere. The warmth, the kind of community, family, friends. It was perfect. So you can see why the politicians do want to go to the pub and be associated with that sense of being normal. Um, But sometimes I think it can look a bit try-hard that they have to be photographed at the pub (laughs) rather than just actually going to the pub. Going to the pub. Mm. Uh, What do you think, Libby? How would you feel if uh, your MP turned up in the local pub? Well, it's uh, it's Therese Coffee, so she's probably there already uh, before me. But there you go. Um, uh, I, 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 of course, they should be in pubs. They should also be in leisure centres and cafes and greasy spoon chippies. They should be sitting out of doors sometimes with a bag of chips, making general conversation. Anything which creates a, a feeling in them of normalisation and of how ordinary normal lives are. Obviously, they can't do this all the time. But you're not just going to get it from across your desk in a constituency yeah. meeting. Um, I, I think they, they should be out and about. But the idea 
idea that pubs will play a vital role in swing politics. I don't know. I, I think pubs are public places and they're not necessarily places to express your political views strongly if you don't want somebody coming and uh, disagreeing with you in, in, a, in a physical way. So um, it, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I, I want them out all over the all place. Over the I place. want them mingling in among us, absolutely. And maybe even sending voice notes to Times Radio. Who knows? Quite right too, quite right too. Now, Merlin, the other thing, I mean, in terms of, you know, if you do get a politician in the, the pub, you might want to bend the, their ear. I was reading the average price of a pint of beer across the UK has risen from £3.81 in 2019 to £4.80. I mean, I'd be quite pleased if I found a pint for £4.80 in London. Um, but the amount of money that a pub makes has fallen uh, from 27p to just 12p. Mm. So, uh, Merlin, if, if a politician, say Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer came into your pub, what would you be bending their ear about? What could they be doing to help pubs? Yeah, very good point. Um, if politicians do want to appear in pubs for perfect photo opportunities, they're going to have to make sure we still have some of them in the first place. Cost pressures, as you've just demonstrated, with the price of a pint versus the profit on a pint, um, are, are squeezed more than they ever have been. And I've been doing this 14 years now, and I've never known margins so skinny, so tight. There are disturbing trends that I see amongst my networks of owner operators who are now working for free, basically, just to keep the doors open and keep their businesses alive. What do we need? I have a laundry list, but top of that list is firstly cutting VAT. Libby Perry's and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's another exit interview, this time with Deanna Davison. 1993. She was first elected as Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland in the great demolition of the Red Wall in 2019 at the age of just 26. In her exit interview, she explains why she's leaving now, including her struggle with migraines. There isn't a day I haven't had a headache for the best part of two years now. She reveals the pressure of being a young female political media star. I heard bits of things that were being said behind my back. Delivers her verdict on bosses, including Boris Johnson. 
The problem I think that, that Boris ended up having was he relied too much on his charisma. Discusses losing her father to a one-punch assault. There was a, an altercation, a guy hit him once, he was dead before he hit the ground. And explains how nobody tells you what to do as a new MP. Had one of the whips that would pull me to one side and say, I was like, oh, sorry, didn't know her. So, Deanna Davison, thank you for being the first MP to have me into your Commons office for your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? My entire 20s was dominated by politics and by throwing absolutely everything I had into politics. And that does mean there have been sacrifices in terms of friendships, in terms of you know time spent with my, my mum, my granddad, my family, my loved ones. And... As I was looking ahead, getting towards 30, I thought, do I want that to be the life I have moving forwards? Obviously, the electorate might have made a decision anyway. Who knows? But for me, it was all about, you know, I want my 30s to have a bit of normality. And then who knows, in 10, 15 years time, once I've sort of settled down a little bit, had a bit of a normal life as a grown up, maybe I'll be back. It's interesting. Quite a lot of the people we've spoken to on this are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and have been here for 40 years rather than four or five. Do you, do you think you were too young when you became an MP? It's a difficult one to answer. I do get asked this quite a lot. I don't really have any regrets about coming in when I came in. I stood for my first um, general election when I was 21, finally got elected at 26. And, you know, I don't feel like my age really had anything to do with doing the job. I feel like I, you know, did it as well as anyone. But certainly there are things in life that you know, most people at that age probably haven't quite settled down, don't have a family, etc. And, you know, I know from colleagues who've started families while they've been here, it's, it's difficult. It's, yeah. it's not insurmountable, but it's difficult. Too young, yes or no? I don't think so. And if I could go back, I would have probably made similar decisions and still continue to try and get in when I did. And then you sort of arrive in Westminster with this sort of young Tory star. What was that like? Because some of the people we've spoken to have arrived in the Commons in by-elections, actually they mm. find they're not part of a gang. Actually, there were so many Conservative MPs. There was, in fact, there was a WhatsApp group where nobody could quite decide what to call it because nobody could remember how many new MPs there were. It was 102, 105. Uh-huh. Um, what's that like then, arriving in the Commons? Did you get on with everyone? Was there a bit of like, oh, she's the telly one from, from Bishop Auckland? There's an amazing sense of camaraderie. I, th- I think anyone coming into Parliament, there is that, but certainly with such a huge intake... Uh, you know the whatsapp group's called the 109 i think there was a miscount i think it was 107 in the end but still having that that kind of new generation of conservatives who'd all won together but particularly you know a huge demographic who'd won in the red wall in seats that were very similar to mine so we all had very similar battles on our hands and similar priorities there was an element i think because you know i'd had a level of media attention that a lot of candidates hadn't even though i kind of never sought it out and never asked for it I heard, you know, bits of things that were being said behind my back about just in it for the attention and all of this stuff. And that was a little bit frustrating, but that's politics, you know. People talk about their colleagues, shockingly, not always in the most positive of lights. I find that very hard to believe. Um, uh, But it meant that, you know, on that media side, it was genuinely quite difficult to deal with because you get thrust into this new job. You're trying to learn the job. You're trying to get your team in place, your office set up. And suddenly your phone's inundated with all these requests from probably you, lots of others, uh, saying, please come and talk to us. We want to be your first interview and all of this. And I remember going to CCHQ and saying, can you help? I I kind of I've never had to deal with this level of of kind of press attention before. I don't really know what to do. What do I do? And the advice was basically say no to everything. Just ignore them. Thought, well, that's nuts. Okay, fine. 
but I, I feel like there wasn't necessarily that level of kind of support that was needed for some of we kind of newer candidates in that regard to kind of help, you know, determine who the who the good, honest players are, determine yeah. who might be trying to catch you out, determine whether it's an interview that's worth taking for the sake of your constituency and raising the profile of the issues that you care about and yeah. things. So that was quite a steep learning curve. And again, with, with, with that kind of level of... Um, frustration from other colleagues who perhaps weren't getting approached as often if I can put it diplomatically now obviously you you know you, lots of people say you owe your seat to winning in 29 because because of Boris Johnson but you backed Jeremy Hunt over Boris Johnson for mm -hmm. the Tory leadership and then you voted against Boris Johnson in the vote of confidence so how would you describe your relationship with Boris Johnson Honestly, fine. I mean, he and I never kind of had any kind of negative conversation. I remember being called into his office, I think, twice. Once was to talk about HS2 in a group setting. I was quite anti. I remain quite anti. And one was a kind of one-on-one -on -one chat because he knew I was unhappy about, you know, post-party gate handling and, and what have you. And those interactions were always very friendly, very human. I think Boris has, has got such a, an amazing charisma that you kind of go into a room with him and you can't help but feel kind of warm it's it's when you step away and then and then look at kind of the actions that follow from those conversations that i think you know it, it becomes much more kind of real and I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic anyway at the best of times so i wouldn't say necessarily that, that he and i had a bad relationship but it's difficult when you know you're in a job trying to chip away at things that really really matter to your constituents to your community to the country and there's all this distraction of Partygate, and I don't say distraction to trivialise yeah. the issue and, and the strength of feeling out there in the public. I say distraction because that shouldn't have been taking up the airwaves. It, we should have entirely been focusing on the things that really, really matter on the ground. So to have that and then, you know, to have instances where things were said in the Commons that turned out not to be true later or not to be entirely true later, and you're trying to sort of defend it as best you can because you want to focus on the stuff that matters. It was really frustrating. And so in the end, you know, I did make the decision to put in my letter of no confidence, which was not a decision that I took lightly at all. Of course I didn't. I mean, you know, he'd won a great mandate from the members. He'd won a great mandate from the country. But integrity in politics really matters. And it's always mattered to me. We'll come back to some of the other uh, bosses you've had in a moment in your exit interview. But you then became a minister in the Department for Leveling Up, appointed by Liz Truss, kept on under Rishi Sunak. What do you think, because it's difficult, particularly if you're a junior minister or in the cabinet minister, did you manage to achieve anything when in that in that time i was there for a year um in some ways a year is a long time in politics as a minister a year feels like two minutes because it it whizzes by and you know you'll know as as a minister there are there are the bits you have to do so you have to turn up for questions select committee appearances and all of that stuff which is very important and an important part of the parliamentary process but doesn't actually mean you're doing stuff um so i think it's really important to try and kind of set out your stall early and the things that you want to achieve now there, there were things i wanted to achieve i wanted to get more of the free ports operational we managed to do that i wanted to get more devolution deals rolled out and power handed back to local people but there was more i wanted to do matt don't get me wrong yes. a lot more i wanted to do it, you then you said you were standing down as a minister uh, mm. first of all uh, tell us about if people don't know the impact that your migraines have had on mm. on you and your ability to do your job do you think was it made worse by the job have you has it been better since you quit it actually hasn't, which uh, is blooming annoying, I have to say. I was, I was kind of hoping that the, the reduced workload and reduced stress levels of you know, not having the ministerial responsibilities on top of parliamentary and constituency responsibilities would make it ease off. It hasn't, which has been annoying. The plus side now is um, the diary's a bit less filled, so I'm not having to cancel so much stuff when it's really bad. But, you know, I, I've suffered from migraine for the best part of eight or nine years now. Usually it's been manageable in the if I can feel one coming on and I take tablets very early, I can just about get through 
if it's not the off chance and it's a really, really bad day, it's hunker down in a dark room, turn off as much noise and light as you can and, and just kind of push through it until, until it's subsided and then move on. The problem is over the last probably two to three years, which shows it's not just the impact of ministerial life and it probably started before that, is that those days in between have got fewer um, so there have been more days where there have been migraine symptoms. The, the headache has been basically constant. There, there isn't a day I haven't had a headache for the best part of two years now, which is frustrating. Often it's low level and the headache's manageable, but it's the other symptoms that come with migraine that I think a lot of people who kind of don't, don't live with it, haven't experienced it, don't recognise. So the blurry vision, I mean, I'm looking at you now and it looks like I've got kind of foggy glass around the edge of my vision, which is not ideal. Um, the inability to properly concentrate, form words. I find myself typing on my phone sometimes when I'm having a migraine day. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial. I know where the buttons are on a keyboard. I, I'm, I'm used to this typing thing. And I will just type utter nonsense. And I look at it and I go, no, no, no that's, that's not what I meant. Because it's as though my, my brain and my body isn't connecting in the way that it should. And so trying to push through that as best you can so that you're not letting people down by cancelling things but whilst recognizing frankly my abilities are impaired today it's been a really tough line to tread and and that was the reason that I decided to step down as a minister because it reached a point where I thought look I, I am not giving this job everything that it needs and the leveling up agenda is so important and so critical for for the country's success for some of the most important deprived communities success and obviously for the party's success I felt it was right to, to hand over the reins. You'd also been suffering with your migraines for what some time why did you decide to go public with it why not just say you were standing down it's one of those things you never want to admit weakness as a politician but I thought honesty was really important in this regard so I thought come out say it and frankly hopefully try and raise some awareness actually about this condition because it's migraine is so stigmatized in the sense that people say oh god this this music's giving me a migraine it's like no no it's not a headache it's a very different thing and actually um you know roughly one in six people in the uk suffer from migraine throughout their lives roughly one in three adult women will suffer from migraine it's a huge thing that affects a huge number of people so i thought talking about it and and trying to kind of um kind of add to the narrative that this is a tough thing um people in high-pressure jobs kind of live through it and try and get through in those jobs. Um, I want to talk to you about TikTok, because you're one of the most <laughs> prolific on TikTok. Why are you bothering? Particularly because mm -hmm. you're not standing again. Because mm -hmm. a lot of them are like, you're putting on, oh, this is the life of Tory MP. And every time I look at that, why is she bothering doing that? <laughs> I've been asked by quite a lot of colleagues, why do you bother with the, the trivial stuff on social media? Why aren't you only talking about policy and things that we're doing? The point of social media is you need people to hear you. You need followers. You need an audience to listen to you. If you've got 100 followers and you're tweeting, great to see the Prime Minister's done this, that's not really achieving much. If you do a few kind of more trivial, in inverted commas, things that garner attention and gain you a thousand followers, suddenly the important stuff you're talking about reaches a larger audience. And that's the reason, not, not to say it's all calculated, because, yeah. you know, I enjoy doing it too. But the point is you have to grow that following so that they listen to the important messages that yeah. you are going to put out. That's the reason. And yes, I'm not standing at the general election, but I still care about, you know, the party that I've spent 15 years of my life in. I still want the Conservative Party to do well. And an area we're not doing too well with now is with young people. Yeah. And the audience on TikTok is predominantly young. I think the video I put on most recently, the biggest audience was about 40%, 45% uh, 18 to 25-year-olds. That's an audience we really need to be working on improving our image with. So, you know, doing a few more fun TikToks to, to show them actually we're human beings too. 
we have fun on the internet just like you do. And by the way, while we're at it, have you heard about this great tax thing you're doing? Have you heard about this policy we're doing that's going to impact you? Have you heard about our reforms for apprenticeships? It's that kind of thing to really try and help promote the party a little bit with that younger audience. Now, do you think it's something the party needs to work on? Right, so you talked a bit about your journey into politics. Let's talk about some of your bosses <laughs> in your exit interview. I suppose we should start with, can you sum up Boris Johnson in a word? Um, it's difficult, but I'm, I'll go with charismatic. And I mean that as initially as a compliment, you know, the, the level of charisma that he brought to that 2019 election campaign definitely had an impact in terms of some of the seats that we took. He managed to talk about issues in a way that got people excited. And I'll never forget that kind of viral photo of the guys at Teesworks with the We Love Boris sort of hand painted sign. That, that's, that's a special kind of politician who can garner that kind of emotional reaction from people. The problem I think that, that Boris ended up having was he relied too much on his charisma, not enough on policy detail, not enough on necessarily driving the, the, the kind of Tory train forward to get things done in the right way in government. Um, and ultimately, I think the, you know, being a charismatic leader is one thing, but you need the leadership skills behind it to really back it up to be a success. And I think they fell short at points. OK, Boris Johnson, charismatic. Liz Truss, in a word. Headstrong. Absolutely headstrong. And I mean that as a, as a massive compliment. Uh, you know, it's, it's no secret that I uh, am a big fan of Liz. I, I backed her leadership campaign. I, you know, help, helped on that campaign. Too headstrong, though? At points, potentially. But I'm, I'm never going to call someone out for, for having integrity and trying to do what they believe in, because I think that's really important in a leader. Um, but I wish there was a little bit more collaboration at certain <laughs> points. It's a very polite way of putting all this. Rishi Sunak, in a word. Uh, really dedicated. That was two words, but dedicated. He is such a hard worker. Um, you know, you hear and see about what he's doing, either from, you know, stuff that's on his social media or media appearances he's doing or policy things that he's outlining and announcing. And then I'll see that he's doing this tea room surgery and this is happening. And Explain what a tea room surgery is for people who don't know. Aha. Uh -huh. So um, there are all these strange places in Parliament that have kind of very archaic names. So we have the tea room, which is basically a a kind of dining room where only MPs and, and members of the House of Lords can go to get a cuppa or a bit of food in between votes. You, you may have heard the phrase, you know, working the tea room, which is what a lot of kind of uh, senior ministers will do to get to know colleagues, to get to talk to them about policy issues. And the Prime Minister, you know, I've seen him in there a few times, kind of post PMQs and things. Um, yeah. So that you could, so it's a chance for colleagues to go yeah. and bed his ear about something. Absolutely. And also, whenever he's going through the voting lobbies, there are always, always people driving, Prime Minister, can I just, Prime Minister, can I just... And he's always happy to have those conversations. So you've got charismatic, headstrong and dedicated. Mm -hmm. it, actually, if you put them all together, you might have a half-decent leader. I think you put them all together, you'd have a dream leader, wouldn't you? Instead, you had three nightmares. No, not three nightmares. <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of your, your bosses, particularly when you're at levelling up. So, when you were first appointed minister, Simon Clark. Yes. Obviously, people now more aware of him and his one man mission to bring down the Prime Minister. What was he like as a boss, in a word? He was great. I mean, you know, I've known Simon for quite a few years. I think I first met him in about 2016, 2017 on a by-election somewhere in East Yorkshire. And he was great. And then I could tell he was a man of kind of great, um, great intelligence, great kind of integrity, really wanted to get stuff done, which I think is a really good trait in, in any politician. Do so you agree with him on lots of policy? Do you agree with him on removing Rishi Sinnott? I don't. I don't at all. Um, and I, I told him as much. I texted him um, the kind of morning after he'd put out his statement, mainly just checking he was all right because he was getting quite an onslaught from a lot of colleagues. But 
we've removed enough leaders for a little while, haven't we? I think. <laughs> I think. I think we all need to just pull together and focus on making sure the policy offers right before the next election. Uh, you're the bus leveling up. Is Michael Gove? Mm-hmm. So, what Michael Gove in a word for us? <laughs> Masterful. Wow. Um, yeah, as in masterful in terms of how he operates as a minister. He, seeing him work a room of officials and kind of translate what he wants achieved in his head in a way that is succinct, positive, and kind of doable, even if it sounds really, really kind of overly ambitious. It, it was inc- a real masterclass in how to be a successful minister. If we sort of go right back to when you first became an MP and in your maiden speech you talked about losing your dad to a one-punch assault. I was 13 years old when a man who later admitted he was high on drink and drugs walked across a pub and ended my dad's life in seconds with one single punch. As a result, Madam Deputy Speaker, I spent my early teenage years in and out of court cases, tribunals, meetings with lawyers and the police. Whilst I was insistent that I would not let a dark event in my past negatively determine what happens to my future. Mm. It's a life I would not want other young people to have. And you raised it quite recently again at at PMQs. Mm -hmm. Sentencing for one-punch killers is not working in this country. Does the Prime Minister agree that now is the time to finally introduce a specific offence and a tougher minimum sentence for one-punch manslaughter? Prime Minister. I pay tribute to the work my honourable friend has done in bringing attention to so-called one-punch manslaughter and highlighting, as she knows well, the anguish those cases cause for the families of the victims. And I know the Ministry of Justice has looked very carefully at the amendment that my honourable friend has proposed, and I know that she'll be meeting the Minister for Safeguarding shortly to both discuss her specific amendment and how we might best address the wider issue. Is there something you want to try and get over the line before you stand down yeah it, it having been the thing that you talked about when you first arrived it absolutely is so i think the, the main catalyst for me kind of getting involved in politics at all was what happened to my dad so it's back in 2007 he was 35 out with his mates in a pub there was a, an altercation a guy hit him once he was dead before he hit the ground which is one of those things that you know you see it in films or in soap operas and you say that doesn't ever happen in real life how ridiculous and then lo and behold we were the family that it did happen to um and it was such a horrendous horrendous time for the family I mean my dad was an only child so my my nan his mum was obviously completely devastated no parent should ever have to lose a child it was such a shock the pure grief the disbelief and then thrust into the world of criminal justice having to try and navigate uh, a manslaughter trial which is something I would never wish on any family and so basically my my kind of mission at that point I was 13 when it happened 14 once the trial was over I wanted to do something with my life where I could try and stop that happening to other families, to other young people, stop people having to go through that. But I didn't really know at that point how to channel it. Um, I thought about joining the police because the police officers who were family liaison officers were incredible. And I spent a few years wanting to do that, but my mum got scared. There was a a local case where um, a female police officer was killed and she, for obvious reasons, um, got quite worried. So I backed away from that idea a bit. I wondered about becoming a lawyer um, and trying to prosecute these cases. Um, And then when I got to, I think about 16, I sort of accidentally discovered politics and thought, oh, hang on, this is a thing that I could do or I can try and influence this particular thing that I care about. And then I will admit, got bitten a bit by the political bug and found it fascinating. Upon getting elected, I, I talked about dad in my maiden speech and I've referenced 
his case um, various times, ma mainly in an awareness that, you know, raising your fist is dangerous in any circumstance more than anything, but also the criminal justice element, because since then I've worked with um, a huge number of families who have lost loved ones in, in a very similar way. And there is a real impression that the criminal justice system is not on their side when it comes to sentencing in particular. Yeah. The average sentence right now is around four years for taking a life, which doesn't seem in any way just. And so I'm working with a charity called One Punch UK at the moment to, to do what we can to improve that, as well as improving victim support. So there's a better understanding of how to navigate the criminal justice system as a family that's living in shock and grief. So I'm working right now on an amendment to the Criminal Justice Bill to introduce um, a specific sentence for one-punch manslaughter. Because there isn't a specific uh, offence, they're recorded in really different ways, so we don't actually have a clear idea of how many of these assaults happen mm. over a five, ten year period. And we don't also have a clear sense of kind of what those sentences are. We're relying on anecdotal evidence, bits we see in the papers, families getting in touch with us. And clearly we need better reporting to understand what's really going on. But also having a minimum sentence that feels more in line with the severity of the crime. Um, on the current sort of manslaughter guidance, the minimum sentence could be as low as 12 months, which is completely ridiculous, frankly. And so... If you do get that on the statute book before you stand mm -hmm. out of the election, where does that rank in terms of the, th the thing you'll be most proud of looking back over the last five years? That would and will be it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, ordinarily I talk about stuff I've managed to achieve in the constituency and the, the people who put me there. But on a, on a personal level, if I can get that done, then um, I'll know my time here was well spent. Well, finally then, the other day, so let's do some uh, classic exit interview questions. You touched on this a little bit, but do you think that we equip you MPs properly to do your job? Yes and no, um, which is the most cop-out answer ever, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, because the, the point of this job is, it, it's not like a normal job, there's no job description, and I think that's a really positive thing because you get elected and you decide what kind of MP you want to be. Do you want to be more constituency focused? Do you want to be all about scrutinising legislation? Do you want to be a mix of different things? Do you want to be a media performer? Do you want to be the person who squirrels away in the background on the detail? You know, there are so many different ways to do this job. And indeed, one of the best bits of advice I got in my first week as an MP, and I can't remember who told me it because I met so many kind of new faces. Yeah. Someone said to me, there are three, uh, 650 different ways to be an MP. You just need to find your own style. And so in that sense, I don't think any formal training program could ever hit every single way to do it, if that makes sense. But then again, um, you do get here and feel a little bit like a deer in headlights with things like parliamentary procedure, which is um, once you know it, it's fine. But, you know, we, we all made various mistakes in our first first sort of few weeks and months. I remember walking in front of the dispatch box during a, a questions. Didn't know I couldn't do that. Had one of the whips sort of pull me to one side and say, Brr. I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't know. Uh, things like that. I think very practical tips on how to navigate parliamentary process you know how if, if you want to get a debate how do you do that those sorts of things in a kind of book or a handbook or a one day training kind of th yeah. session could be helpful so would you recommend the job to someone else it depends on the person um because you know I, i've had a few relatively close friends who said to me what do you think is this something that i should do and i've judged my response based on the person i know their character how i feel like they deal with the pressure of the job, the upsides of the job, the downsides of the job, the kind of upheaval to your personal life, which this job is. Um, and I vary my answer every time. But what I always try and do is not, I don't want to sound overly positive to feel like I'm trying to kind of push people into it. 
when it can be a really tough job. I don't want to sound relentlessly negative <laughs> so as to kind of put anyone off ever yeah. wanting to stand for Parliament. So I always try and give people a really kind of honest overview, which is that in some ways it's the most incredible job in the world. You can really change people's lives. You can do stuff that makes a real difference for your community, for your country. You can have this amazing platform to campaign on issues that are really dear to you. Um, on the downside, there's the relentless workload, the impacts on your family life, the abuse, the threats, etc. Um, and if you feel like you're tough enough to navigate all that, then go for it. So finally then, uh, obvious exit interview question, what will you do next? <laughs> Slightly TBC at the moment. Um, I'm only now that we've kind of ticked over into election year starting to really think hard about what I might want to do. You know, there are causes that are really, um, really dear to me and really close to my heart that I'd like to continue working on. So my one punch awareness clearly is one of those. Um, and I'm working on a campaign at the moment to um, increase research funding for lobular breast cancer, which is something that whether I'm here or not, I really want to continue working on. Um, I don't have a plan. Uh, we as a family do have a plan, which is frightfully exciting. Um, my partner is in the Foreign Office um, and I'm very proud of him. He's landed a, a gig overseas, which um, I'll be joining him on once that election's over. Oh, wow. So, um, Can you say where? Uh, I can, but that's his story to tell, okay. so I'll leave that to him. But yeah, so it's going to be a very different life. Um, and what a better way to fully escape politics and travelling a fair few miles out of the country. Well, it's been great to speak to you, Deanna Davison. Thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. I don't want to see the good, the darling, you better go We'll have another exit interview with another MP who's standing down next week and probably every week for the rest of time because there were so many of them. Don't forget, you can get in touch by emailing me matt at times.radio or WhatsApp 033 2353. That's 033 2353. Just make sure you make clear that it's a message for me so nobody else thinks you're complaining about them. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.